Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. That work said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. How you define success can be a kind of Rorschach test. One person's crowning achievement can be another person's prison. For most business school graduates, climbing the ladder in a Fortune 500 company is the ultimate opportunity. If you work hard and play your cards right, the corner office, the big salary, and all the associated perks could one day be yours. Rodney Williams understands this very conventional distillation of the American dream. In 2012, Williams was a high-powered marketing executive for Procter & Gamble, one of the world's largest consumer products companies. He commanded a six-figure salary. He was on the fast track, but he was bored. So after some soul-searching, Williams walked away from the mighty P&G, to co-found the technology company Listener, without a salary, without a safety net. Soon he was drowning in debt. That's when he started to learn the truth about the man in the mirror. Rodney, what did you dream about when you were a little boy? (laughs) Uh, Great question. You know, for for me, I actually dreamed of the world. I, I dreamed of things that I didn't necessarily see in front of me. I grew up in Baltimore. Uh, so, you know, I would, I would dream about other places. But most importantly, I actually would dream about being able to provide for myself and my family. And it wasn't about having dreams about being a, an athlete or a certain profession. It was just dreaming about the ability to get it that done. Who influenced you? You know, uh, one of my favorite uh, TV shows growing up and was Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And I used to watch that TV show all the time. And uh, I used to look up the different individuals that would be on that show. And, you know, they all were entrepreneurs. They all were executives. They all were builders of companies. It was probably the first time I, I realized that 
that seemed to be the 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 option for the biggest opportunity. So you were an aspirational child. Extremely aspirational. I mean, there's tons of stories of uh, of me um, enterprising as a child. I always say that I'm, I always was thinking of ways to create value. Uh, as a kid, I sold things in my mom's beauty shop. You know, the kid with the with the lawn business. Uh, you know, I was I was that kid, and everything was. Uh, I understood that everything was a fundamental step, not the ultimate vision, but just a step. When did you first begin to see the connection between hard work and achievement? I guess what I learned probably two really interesting stories. I was an athlete younger. and I wasn't a good athlete, but I would watch and idolize Barry Sanders. And then I, I would go in the backyard and I would imitate his moves. And then I kept doing it. And then I would wake up and work out. And this is at the age of about nine or 10 years old. Um, and because I really wasn't a good player my first year, I didn't really play much. Um, and, I, and I really wanted to play. So the, the following years, I got to play, put it that way. And I became an incredible athlete. But I don't think I was a natural athlete. I just think that I worked at it harder than others. The other story was I actually failed the first grade. Um, you know, I don't know what that was called. Someone said I was immature. Um, but I wasn't necessarily a good student um, early in early years. And, I, you know, when you're not a good student, that's kind of your reputation in class. But there was this coloring contest. It's like, the, it's like the Christopher Columbus coloring contest. And if you win, you get this, you know, you win a prize, but you also uh, get this, you know, plaque from the president. Um, and um, so I entered this coloring contest. And the point is, uh, you know, I really took my time and I really focused. And I actually won the national competition. <laughs> Everyone in my school was completely shocked. Um, I just, at that time, I hadn't shown the the ability to do things like that or to step up and outward. But again, it was just another example of, I realized that I was fully and completely capable of doing impossible things. It's just if, if I wanted to or not. So having a failure like that in the first grade, that can really mark you negatively. Or... It could light a fire in you. Clearly, it motivated you to work harder, right? Exactly. Um, that was it. It, it. it all started, you know, I had a, I, I grew up, uh, I actually, um, I was born partially deaf, so uh, my speech wasn't as, uh, I had, a, you know, a speech impediment. So some people would say, well, you know, you, you failed because you had an excuse. And I, I, I don't really say that. I, you know, I failed because of whatever the case may be. And you can let a lot of the excuses define you or you could just work at it and, and work at it relentlessly. And, and, and that's, that's, what, that's what prevailed for me, at least. What do you remember about hanging out around your mother's beauty shop? Well, uh, outside of it being uh, uh, mom's Jamaican, my family's Jamaican, it being a pretty lively Caribbean place to be. What I remember, number one, is my mom owning her business and my mom being a businesswoman. Uh, and my mom creatively thinking of how to add more value. And it was, 
a, a simple thing to, you know, you know, it's a beauty shop. Can we fit another chair to get another beautician? You know, like how is the layout? And it was all these things that when you when your babysitter become when you know when there isn't a capacity or capability to hire a babysitter, you know, you go to work with your parents. And that was just one of those examples. Part part of one of the things I learned there's uh, I also saw opportunity. My mom um, didn't necessarily have the the best magazines because they were expensive. So you know I decided well I'm going to uh, buy the the magazine or get the subscription to the magazine, and I'm going to rent them to her customers that are waiting. And for me, I thought that was a great opportunity. You rented magazines? <laughs> well, I mean. You know, the, the, she didn't have the, the cool magazine. She didn't have the magazines that everyone wanted to read. So, you know, and, you know, I, I saw an opportunity where I could rent 25 cents at the time. You know, magazine at that time was probably like a dollar ninety nine. Um, but, you know, in a given month or uh, that magazine, I could easily get $10 <laughs> over the month. For, for that magazine at 25 cents. So uh, I was, uh, I was definitely maybe like six, 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 seven. So right around that first grade time period. <laughs> I, I like to think first grade must have been a. I think I know why you failed first grade. You were too busy counting your loot. I, uh, I definitely was making money. I definitely was making money. I think I, 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 I remember taking that same concept to, I probably was like the fourth or fifth grade. And penny candy, I thought, wow, like I'm going to buy penny candy and I'm going to sell penny candy at lunchtime. <laughs> but I'm going to sell it for, you know, 10 cents or, you know, 20, you know, whatever. But the school shut me down <laughs> after a few weeks. <laughs> it quickly, quickly got out of hand. But uh, good times. What's the most valuable lesson you learned trying to hustle and make a buck as a kid? You know, it's, it's, it all kind of culminated when I was in college and I was in a, I was one of my favorite teachers. I was in an economics class. And uh, he had the supply and demand curve uh, actually tattooed on his chest. And he said, this is just the fabric of every business, every hustle, every enterprise, Actually, every part of capitalism is about supplying something that is being demanded for. And if you can nail it the right way, it can become a very, very big business. And if you organize and all of that. So to me, I was never hustling. I was actually just learning the art of supply and demand and being able to see that opportunity before any uh, others saw that opportunity. So you go off to West Virginia, you get your MBA at Howard. And you land your dream job. You go to work as a marketing executive for Procter & Gamble. So, you know, and especially at that time, uh, I mean, uh, P&G was you know, one of the number one places you can work uh, post-business school. Um, it was the equivalent of working at McKinsey or, you know, going to Goldman Sachs. You know, every business school candidate wanted to work there. And if you were interested in brand management, PNG was the place that invented it. So uh, it was pretty high on my list. Um, it was, you know, it was number one on my list. Um, cause, because for me, it was, you know, everything that I had learned about PNG is that it was, it was, was going to be an extension 
of my education. It was going to be an extension of how I was going to learn. And I did something a little bit different. As I made my way throughout college, I did tons of internships and I had my own business. But I didn't necessarily leave school for and take a couple of years off to work and then go back to grad school. I kind of did it concurrent. Like I did it. And me, I just went through. And my, my logic was that I'm going to learn the capability, you know, the, the textbook capability. And then uh, I, I want to go to a place that is going to allow me to apply that as best as possible. And ultimately, I ended up being P&G. I, I, I applied. I got the intern. I was an intern first. And then I was a full-time hire. It was one of the most competitive environments that I've ever been in. Learned so much. They put so much responsibility on uh, on employees when you get hired because there's an expectation for you. There is an expectation of you. And uh, and if you can't make it, you you will quickly, quickly see the exit. So it was an incredible, uh, it was an incredible learning environment for me. And uh, but I was I was in brand management and I uh, I worked on PNG's largest brand, which was Pampers. PNG, mighty PNG, probably knows more about the American consumer than any other corporation. What did you learn? Yeah, you know I I, I learned. There's a lot of things you can learn about the American consumer. I, I think, and the consumer fundamentally changes generationally, yearly, season. But human insight is pretty consistent across. And what I, what I learned, what I took away, is you know, building products not necessarily based on features, two times drier or uh, you know, thicker, quicker, thicker, upper. It's, it's, we were going into a generational shift where products needed to have purposes. Products needed to have meaning. Um, products needed to connect to human insight. It was very, very, it was very different um, then. And I, I saw that coming. And if you see today, how, how many products have to have a purpose and have to have some type of we used to call it, it was a sustainability project, but it's not about it. It needs to be ingrained in the brand. The reality is you know, people are buying brands because of how they connect with this purpose and they connect with uh, it at a very, very human level, not necessarily its features. So you have a big job. You're earning a six-figure salary. You're living the American dream. And yet, you're a little bored selling Pampers. <laughs> Bored is, uh, is is an aggressive statement. I would say I was my 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 coworkers. There was a there was a moment, and it actually you know my uh, it went made it all the way up to my uh, marketing director, where I, I made a reference to work that day as if, as if I'm being caged, and I'm like ah, I'm like I'm caged because I. Like I, I like to tell, like I'm probably like a bull, if there's any reference. Uh, and and what I mean by that is, like I once once I feel something is right, I pretty much am a am a train, and I would not get in front of me. And uh and you know when you work at a big organization, there's just a lot of bureaucracy that that happens when when and how decisions need to be made, and that's obviously it's because it's, it's for checks and balances. With that said. Yeah, I just, I just, I, I wanted to completely open up my ability to go. And 
I didn't make the decision to leave in the, like separate of listener or the company that I created. Um, I was going to, I had, I was in a fast track in my mind. I was just going to have to change P and Now what happened, you know, as I am there creating innovation, I got really comfortable creating innovation, at least uh, in my head. And as I started to think about what became my company, it was only after that, that I made the decision that I was going to leave P&G. What was the startup bus and how did that affect your story? It was, uh, it was simple. I had this idea and didn't know what to necessarily do with it. Started to talk to a bunch of startup folks. They said, hey, there's a little competition on the way to stop by Southwest. If you take your idea on this bus, a few engineers said, hey, I, I would try to build it for you. Um, if I was to build this without this competition, it would cost you $50,000. And I said, well, I'm, you know, why not? And I remember you know, going, to school, going to work and asking my manager that if I could you know, take a week off. What do you, you know, vacation? I said, no, I'm going on a startup competition <laughs> called the Startup Bus, and I'm going to create a company. And, uh, you know, at the time, it was just, oh, this is going to be a great learning exercise for you, Rodney. This is going to be fantastic. Please go ahead. So that, that's basically how the Startup Bus became part of the story because we actually ended up winning our bus, placing top 10. The investor that we shook our hand coming off the stage ended up taking us to dinner, and that became our first investor. And by this point, you had made friends with a guy named Chris. Yes. So Chris, Chris Astrid's best friend, co-founder, he was the first person I, I communicated the idea to. So he was also the person who named it, the idea. And he was part of the group that said, hey, we're going to do this. We need to go on this bus. We need to go. This is a great opportunity for us to validate the, the idea and validate the potential. And for, you know, for someone who was completely unaware at that time, did not understand the startup world, I always said that roughly 72 hours was like a crash course in everything startup. I mean, we probably pitched 30 times. You know, we were changing decks and making decks. Engineers were developing, trying to create some type of beta or demo MVP. Um, and there was no sleep. But I learned so much about moving fast, breaking, failing, and learning. So it was an incredible experience. What did that process stir inside you? I think it validated that I could do this. I think that's what it did for me. I think I, I came home a completely different person. I, came, I, was, I had just been uncaged. I had just been released. And the entire world, I felt, was like at my fingertips. And it was, it was back to like the kid, you know. There's, I found there's an opportunity here. And I was going to, I'm the only person that sees it. And I'm the only person that can create it. And, 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 I, and, I, and ultimately, that's, that's what happened. Now, that can be a lonely feeling if you're the only person who gets it. Exciting, but lonely. How would you describe that experience? It's exciting, but lonely. But that's one of the things that I look in, 
might look for from, from other founders and, and, and other partners is that you have, if you, you have to have the ability to turn to uh, let others see the same thing. And you call it inspiration, maybe it's leadership, whatever the case may be. Um, that fundamental skill is extremely important um, because if you're the only one that ultimately sees it, then and investors can't see it, so they can't fund it. Your team can't see it, so they can't build it. And ultimately, uh, your customers, it's, it's, not a good, it's not a good product and that can't be validated. So for me, even though it was something that I could see, you know, my goal as the founder, my goal as the leader was to get as many people to see it as well as possible. And if they could all see it, then collectively, we would go out and do something great. So tell me about the initial idea for Listener and how it changed. So I think the, the initial idea of Listener was simply that, you know, the, the way our mobile devices connected and communicated with the physical world, I felt was still very cumbersome. For me, it was obvious, but, you know, every time I see a barcode or a QR code or iBeacons or how it's so hard to just connect to Wi-Fi or how it's difficult to connect to a Bluetooth device. Um, and for, for me, friction is difficulty or friction is an op- It was an opportunity for me. And I felt like, is there an opportunity for us to create a new signal that in the beginning, I thought this was going to be more of a marketing tool. I said, well, you know, you know coming from the marketing world, we could use this new signal to trigger messaging to trigger marketing engagement. And that's where it started. It was all about enhancing a moment in time using this audio trigger that is silent, that can be played on television, can be played in music, can be played in entertainment, can be you know, broadcast in the stadium. And I was gonna trigger engagement. Could be a coupon, could be a light show, could be a, a number of different things. That's where it started. What was it about you? that made you want to take that leap away from the security of P&G to start something that was unproven, something that might not work? Well, you know, I think, I think one of the things that for me, you know, I, I had gained a lot of confidence. You know, let's be, let's be quite frank. I went to West Virginia University. I did two degrees in four years. I did two masters in two years. I graduated at Howard University. My class of interns that showed up at PNG was Dartmouth, Harvard, MIT, you know, Stanford. Um, and out of the 32, I think like only five got offered. I was one of the five. You know, within the first two years at PNG, I won six or seven different awards. I had three patents. That question is kind of, and the reason why I'm trying to tell you that is uh, I was a high performer, high octane performer. And I knew that, P&G knew that. I had job offers at that time to go work at Beats, to leave and go work at Apple or Amazon. So I wasn't nervous or about my job security. I actually, my mom was, and my friends was, and everybody thought I was crazy, but, I knew what type of employee I was. And I knew that, honestly, I think that I'm going to be more valuable 
if I do this, I'm going to have more to offer uh, an organization like PNG if I do this. Even if I'm unsuccessful, the fact that I learned how to uh, develop a product, launch it, scale it, and raise funding, um, operate it, I'm going to learn things at 27 and 28 years old that I normally wouldn't learn until I'm in my 40s. So for me, that's how I thought. And I said, well, this is, this is, this is, this is like, this is another opportunity. I got to take it. Um, I got to make that jump. Uh, and I did, I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell a lot of folks. I think a lot of people didn't realize I had made my jump until they saw the first article. Within a few months, you're deeply in debt because you needed to put a lot of your own money into the company to keep it going. How tough was that? Yeah, you know, I think within the first, you know, the, the you know the first twelve months, you know, it's uh, it's difficult because you, you may or may not get all of the funding at a at a single point in time. Um, and and as you can imagine, it's a it's a balancing act of money coming in and money going out. So yeah, I mean, uh, December twenty thirteen, as we were waiting for invoices to come in and Christmas and also the next round from about December to about April. We, we basically had ran out of capital and I, I, to make ends meet, you know, I entered the bank account and maxed out the credit card and I got it done. Um, so, you know, uh, it was, uh, it was a risky move that I was nervous about, but I knew that I couldn't slow down the team. It, it was Christmas. I, I knew that I had team, team members that had family, you know, that had expectations and, I don't believe in this so wholeheartedly that I would risk it all, then why would they? What did that decision say about you? Um, you know, I'm a completely imperfect manager and leader, but I appreciate my team. I appreciate my the team. And when I mean team, I mean investors, employees, advocates, anyone that has been supportive because they have essentially given up something to support me. They sacrificed something. And for, for me, I, I, you know, me doing something like that, it's just, it's just my team should know that I am willing to sacrifice everything for, for the dream and, and for the vision and for the goal. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. What would you say to a young person out there who has a dream, but it's risky, it's scary? What would you tell them about the importance of taking a risk to achieve a dream? Well, that's probably the right dream. <laughs> you know, and I think the, the scarier it is, uh, uh, it's probably the you're on to something. I would, I would tell every kid, um, not necessarily to go for it, but to plan for it. And, and even though I made, I took a big risk, I planned. I learned what I didn't know. I budgeted differently. I thought of the worst case scenario. And I planned for the worst case scenario but um, I chased the best case scenario. And that planning is what I think, uh, you know, 
know, we may or may not talk about a lot when you take a big risk, but it's really, really important. Um, it will also ease the, the nervousness and the, and the stress and the tension because you have a backup. You have the backup. And it could be as simple as, hey, I'm going to go take this big risk. But if I don't reach this milestone by a certain date, I need to do something differently. So, you know, and it, that's, that's just given because at that date, I still can recover or that date, I can analyze what I've done and maybe pivot. And I, cause I still have time. Um, so I just think, you know, conceptually, that's basically what a listener has been doing since its inception or ever since its creation was you start off with this idea and at every stage, every milestone, we're, 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 we're perfecting it and perfecting it. And what's happening today is a perfection of an idea in a market um, followed by customers and investors. That, that's basically what has happened over the past seven years. Was there a moment you realized you were, you were going to make it? And if so, how did that make you feel? Well, there was definitely a moment of, hey, I'm broke, and hey, I'm no longer broke. <laughs> so <laughs> it was, there was definitely that moment, right? Uh, when the credit card stopped working, you start asking for rides to places and I didn't go home for Christmas, you know, I couldn't travel, had to make tough decisions. And, um, and you're hoping I was, I was, I was, I was ambitious. I believed that we were going to close our next round. And I remember it's like, as long as I have contract, someone will be able to give me money. <laughs> Like we, we, we have contracts, we have customers, we, we, somebody can see this. And it was, uh, it was a day, it was a bet. And, 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 and I remember, you know, it was a group out of Boston called Progress Ventures. They gave me a term sheet. And I remember uh, saying, wow, because I think if they knew where I was staying at in Boston on someone's couch, uh, you know, I don't, I, they at least probably got me a hotel room. Um, but, um, you know, it was, it was, it was a breath of fresh air. Um, it was someone putting some air under, uh, the wings and, um, you know, and I, so it was an incredible feeling, um, for that to happen. Um, and then another term sheet came a month later and, and, and we, we started, we, we were back. So, um, that's, that's the story. What felt better? The financial burden being lifted? or the validation that comes from someone believing in you and this company you created? Um, I think the validation. I, you know, I'm, I'm semi you know, I think everyone, yes, everyone is somewhat motivated by financial gain, but in this case, it's very hard to become venture back. And this was, this is, this is 2013, 2014 especially out of Cincinnati, Ohio, there was just not a lot of companies that were coming out of uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, yet alone uh, a founder that was uh, African-American. It just, it, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a buzzword. It wasn't, it wasn't a topic. It was nothing. So, um, you know, me going to VCs at the time, um, it was, I was looking for validation. I was looking for, like, do we, does this idea meet the criteria? 
lightning. But is it? Is it? Is it? Maybe not. So, you know, and the worst case scenario is that I would have never gotten funding and we would have never known. But um, I think the validation was what was most valuable was what, you know, when you close your eyes, uh, you say thank you. Uh, a slight tear may fall because it's, uh, you, you understood how hard it was. Tell me about the technology. Yeah, you know, as I mentioned, it started out as a signal and it grew into a protocol or it grew into a software product that transports data between devices. Um, and as it started to grow into that transport product, we, we did a ton of analysis, right? And, you know, we use this to open car doors. What is the value? We use this to connect. If we use this in IoT products, what is the value? If we use this for a ticket, what is the value? And when we did this analysis, if we used it to pay for something, it, it created the most value for the company. It was the largest market opportunity. And we then decided to go after it. And we felt that to go after it, there were significant things that we needed to do. Number one, from a product standpoint, we needed to make it secure. We needed to make it reliable. And from the market opportunity standpoint, there needed to be a market demand for a new way to pay. What's the most important lesson you've learned through this process about entrepreneurship and about yourself? You know, the most important thing that I've learned, you know, how to appreciate respect and grow your team. And, you know, you have to depend on each other. If something like this is ever going to grow and, and become what you envision it to be. Um, I think I've learned how to be patient. Uh, you know, there is the startup stories um, that take two years and three years. Or there are the other stories, you know, that may take 12 or 15. I always said, there's no race to a billion. I think it's just people who get there. <laughs> and uh, that's probably the other piece that I've, uh, I've learned. Um, the other thing I've learned about this entire journey, it's also more science than art. You know, um, I, I have, you know, I co-founded another company built on IT that I, that I created. It has its own CEO, its own company. It's successfully raising funding. And it's, it's, it's the development or the output of everything that I've learned with listeners. Everything that I did wrong or may have not done as fast as I would like with that particular company, it's, uh, it's, it's a model it's a better output. It's a better model. It's basically because I've learned it. I learned how to do it. So um, my advice, my, my, my way I can help guide that, even at uh, uh, you know, a fraction of my time, it's doing significantly better. So uh, tons of things. If you'd stayed at P&G, if you'd not taken that chance, do you think you would be unfulfilled today? Uh, no, I, I don't think I uh, would be. I, I don't. I tend to not be a woulda, coulda, shoulda person. <laughs> um, that's probably the selfish part of me. Is that you know I kind of own it. You know, once I make my decision, so I don't think I would have um, 
felt that I missed something. I, I will tell you this though, I, I would have probably, I don't think I would have been met my full potential through that way. I would have felt like I had a lot more to get by working at PNG. And if PNG would have figured out how to provide for that, then maybe not. And you know, I don't know. But if I had continued to um, be used as I was, I would have been underutilized. What is it that you wake up in the morning feeling that's empowering, that's exciting, that you didn't have in a corporate America? I think uh, it's this notion, like, there's no backup plan. You know, when you work at corporate America and big companies, there's, there's, there's always another chance. I can get sick and I can say, oh, let's reschedule the call. You know, let's have it next week. Um, oh, no, no, no. I'm, you know, let's, let's just figure it out. It, 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 yeah. Unfortunately, when you put so much bureaucracy in an organization, you get a lot of people pointing at other people. So you get a lot less doers. Um, and I think that's what slows down innovation in big companies. Um, when you look at a startup, they're, they're, who are like, yes, yeah, some of the younger employees can start to point at each other, but eventually it gets to them. Eventually, it gets to leadership, and there's no one behind that, you know. And it can be as simple as I'm currently in Pacific Time. We have a customer, a potential client out of Germany, that said that they're only available to me. And this is a person we've been trying to meet with for 30 days. They were only available 2 a.m. Pacific Time, um, and then there was another call at 5 a.m. and you know, me and Chris, my co-founder, we were on the call. Um, we could have pushed it down the line, could have been some other folks, but that's not how this works. You know, uh, there is no one else. And if this opportunity means something for us, we're going to get on the call, we're going to get it done. And I think that's the biggest difference between corporate America is that um, we're going to, like, when you work for yourself, when you are the, the last line of defense, um, you, you act accordingly. Thanks to Lane McGibbony and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You, too, can become an American Achiever.